Hello and welcome to today's episode. I will be speaking to Dr. Rachel Sharman on social media, Google and patient behavior. Dr. Sharman, tell us about yourself. Hello, good morning or good afternoon, everyone, wherever you are. Uh, yeah, so I'm a senior uh, lecturer in psychology at the University of the Sunshine Coast. Uh, I actually come not from an academic background. I actually uh, did my first undergraduate degree by the age of 19, as you do, and uh, raced off and worked in the real world for about 15 years before I decided to, I'd grow up and, um, and come back and do postgraduate study. Uh, so I've always worked with children. I have a very long-standing interest in the uh, child adolescent and young adult brain. But yeah, I obviously uh, teach and research in, in many areas of psychology, but my, my focus for the most part is, is children and adolescents. This is the clinical takeaway from HealthEd, interviewing leading medical experts on important topics that can positively impact the way you practice. Here's your host and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. Rachel, we're looking at something quite different today. We're looking mm. at social media, uh, Google and behaviour. So um, what can you tell us to give us a sense of context? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is probably why people ask me a lot about social media, because I do work with adolescents. <laughs> I've had quite an introduction to TikTok, Tumblr, all sorts of very strange places, um, horrifyingly even a little bit about the dark web. Uh, but look, um, in terms of, of our interview today, we're talking about, I guess, the way people are changing in terms of how they're interacting with social media, particularly around health and medical appointments and and potential, potential sorts of medical problems. So look, I, I did a of a, a very quick and dirty look at the research both internationally and in Australia and and there I think there are some striking similarities the first will surprise no one that it's it is younger people who are much more likely to use um, Google and social media and all the rest of it particularly if they have a health issue or they're concerned about a health problem so there's like an inverse correlation the older the patient gets the less likely they are to be to be mucking around on social media having said that um, all of the studies I looked at made the very very clear point that people well into their 70s and 80s are still, you know, you're still getting a proportion, but the, the proportion is much lower. So if if we take a, a sort of a broad-based look at it, around 50% of people that tumble into your practice have probably had a look at something. So they've Googled their symptoms or they've Googled their condition that they know they have. So so it's about a toss of a coin uh, in terms of your entire patient group with, with the weighting there at the lower end of the, of the patient's uh, age. Did they look at how these sorts of behaviours might actually change the interaction, uh, the clinical interaction? They sure did. Um, and look, there was there were pros and cons, which was really interesting. I, I thought I thought GPs were, um, you know, very honest, but also um, very upfront that sometimes there are some real positives that come out of this. So, you know, for people who already have a little bit of health anxiety, this can be very, you know, um, uh, not very helpful. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you've ever looked up a Google thing yourself, but I guarantee you, if you look up Google with your symptoms, at some point they will say it's cancer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. So it doesn't, whether your hair's going grey or you've got a sore toenail, <laughs> I promise you at some point Google's going to say cancer um, or, or a range of, you know, diabolically rare, you know, horrifying sorts of outcomes. So, 
you know, unfortunately for someone with health anxiety, if they're Googling their symptoms a lot, they're going to see a lot of very, very unbelievably rare, but very difficult, um, you know, horrible outcomes. So they tend to come into their doctor quite flustered and, mm. and upset um, and, and convinced that they've got something quite serious when in fact it's, it's you know, something really quite you know, benign. Uh, so, so there was that issue and a lot of GPs mentioned that. A lot of GPs also mentioned, and this was picked up by a very recent uh, Australian research that I think was actually done by Health Ed, unrealistic expectations. So that, that came up a lot. Um, so GPs saying that people were coming in kind of with their own diagnosis as well as their own treatment plan, <laughs> some of which was really not very realistic um, at all. So, so that was an issue. But the pros, um, a, a number of doctors also pointed out that actually uh, Google and, and social media was also sort of orienting people to lifestyle changes, so such as diet and exercise, which, you know, I think every health practitioner struggles with to sort of impress upon their patients just how important getting those basic fundamentals right can be. And a number of doctors did say, hey, look, you know, to give Google its credit, a lot of patients have really taken that on board or really, you know, um, perhaps looked in more depth about what sort of exercise they could do or signing up to an exercise program or jumping onto YouTube and doing aerobics and things like that, or, you know, looking at different recipes. So they found it really useful um, in, in terms of their practice for that aspect and thought it was actually quite positive in that mm. in that regard. Rachel, I, I recall, and of course, I've, I feel challenged because, um, you know, all of us would have experiences where a patient had come and done their own research and said something. And our initial response could be, you're kidding me, or I haven't heard of that. And, and the difficulty, of course, is um, not knowing which one is right in our own minds. Uh, is it uh, something just if you like, so out of left field that it's completely untrue, or is it something true, but we haven't heard of it before? How do we respond in those sorts of situations? Look, I really feel you because I live in a hinterland town called Mullaney, which is very well known for anti-vaxxers and <laughs> lots of alternative health. And um, so even just, you know, in my own local community, I, I personally get this a lot as well. And you're absolutely spot on. I've experienced this as well, where you, you hear some way out idea and you think, oh, for heaven's sakes, you know, um, that can't be right. And, and you know, dare I say it, you go and Google it. Although in my case, I've got the benefit of the university research databases <laughs> at my fingertips and the Cochrane database and all the rest of it, which is great. And you find that there's actually some merit behind it. So mm. I, I think, look, this this is a this is a really tough one. I mean, I, I don't think GPs probably have the time to do what I do, but sometimes when people approach me with these sorts of things, including students occasionally, because students might want to research something that I think, oh, that just sounds, you know, completely wrong. But what I tend to do is actually ask where they got the information from. So what was the source? And I don't just mean the internet, but specifically what was the source and occasionally I'll even sit with the student and look up the issue myself and go okay well this is what this research says or this is what the Cochrane database says or this is what this you know emerging research says you've gotten this off a blog site or heaven forbid TikTok and that that's not really what we you know use in terms of um, of peer-reviewed science but look David I've, I've found myself in that position where I have indeed looked it up and, and in fact there has been some really quite astounding research behind the idea it's just very new it's very emerging and it's not something that I was I was privy to so I think look the first question for GPs where did you hear that 
where did you find that? And just see if you can get some idea of the source before you find yourself going down that rabbit hole to check whether or not it's got any veracity to it. Mm. And I find one of the difficulties, um, Rachel, is actually trying to Google exactly what we're talking about. And then you come up with this whole list of sites, which the patient says, see, I've told you, it's there. And of course, uh, like you said, they would not be the sites that I would go to. And then we have to have this debate about, as you rightly said, what is legit and what's not legit or how to teach our patients where to go to. So it's a good teaching opportunity, isn't it? Look, it really is. And that, and I think that's why I use it with students, because it, obviously in my role as a, as a lecturer, this is actually, this actually can be quite useful. And occasionally I've even taken a, a you know, a particularly, um, I, I suppose, terrible and uh, downright fraudulent website and then used that, that in lecture as a teaching tool to say, look, look at what people are putting up on the internet and, and let's do an analysis of this and actually, you know, go down that rabbit hole and see where they've got this from to find that actually the sources are, you know, just basically fabricated full stop. As I said, I doubt GPs have the luxury of being able to sit there in their office and do that. It, it does take a bit of time. Mm. I think the best you can do is explain to patients that there's a lot of information mm. on the internet. There mm. are a lot of people who are out there to tell you something to make money and to be very careful of that. There are a lot of snake oil merchants and that as a, as a doctor and as a scientist, what you're looking for is uh, what we call evidence-based information that someone has actually run some kind of study to test whether, for example, this particular substance does this particular thing in the body uh, and if it's not in a scientific peer-reviewed journal it's it's very you know you have to be very careful exactly what you're reading and, and what the person's agenda is in publishing that so true and the other thing I'm aware of uh, Rachel is this, is that um, how I respond to you as an individual really does color how you will see me as your doctor in the sense that if I did engage with you, spoke respectfully, discuss some things, maybe even say, look, I might look it up and get back to you, mm. versus the, oh, don't believe that, that's all rubbish. Any research done on how this, if you like, um, a tainting of that clinical encounter may be short-lived or long-lasting? Yeah, look, absolutely. And I think there was something even on the ABC or The Guardian, something the other day talking about bedside manner and, and how that interacts with surgical decisions and all sorts of really interesting things. So I think it's really careful to bear that in mind. And just remember, if you say something like, oh, that's all rubbish, et cetera, you've immediately got that person on the defensive. And when people are on the defensive, they get angry and they attack. Now, th this is, and this is a human response, okay? So there's, there's no difference between you, me or anyone else there. But it's obviously going to be extremely unhelpful for that clinical relationship. So I think that first approach that you mentioned is the better one to say, okay, I haven't heard about that. Yeah. I'll have a look at it and get back to you. And even if it does lead, end in a conversation saying, look, unfortunately, you know, the source of this information is just not something that we can take seriously from a scientific point of view you know this this is these are the sources that we need to use and this is the kind of evidence we need you that is still a difficult conversation but to be dismissive off the off the bat is difficult unless it's something I suppose you've already looked into because a previous patients told you about it and in which case I just think you come from that educative approach to say you know what I've actually looked into this and and this is what I found and this is this is my understanding of what's going on here and really just leave that with the patient to process by themselves. And of course, being a psychologist, I'd love to bring this up with you, is when you do try that teaching approach and then you find that 
there are actually barriers coming up. So you realize, oh my goodness, you know what? We are both addressing the messenger because the message is actually mm -hmm. hidden somewhere else. How would one go probing? So as a psychologist, mm -hmm. what are some of the probing questions you may ask to try to find out the hidden messages and agenda? Oh, that's a tricky one. So we're getting right into world views here. So <laughs> we just go straight to the philosophical heart of some of this stuff here. Um, so I, I'll, I'll just introduce the concept of, a, of what we call a worldview. So this a worldview is something like the lens through which you, you interpret information in the world. And it, even as a psychologist or even just as a human being, it does take some time. This is You're not going to tap into this in, in the first one or two sessions. You've really got to get to know people and understand where they're coming from so people will have a series of almost rules that they operate by so so some of these rules might be things like if you work hard you'll get ahead whereas other people will think it's all down to luck um, what I do makes no difference mm -hmm. so it's these really internalized value systems that people have and it makes such an impact on their health I mean you can see straight away someone who thinks that doesn't matter how much I drink every night whether or not you know I, I become you know I get liver cancer that's just all luck um versus someone who goes, actually, what I do makes a huge difference. Mm. I'd really like to know. So it is about getting to know your patient. It will mm -hmm. take time. You're never going to drill down to this, as I said, just with one or two sessions or, or just a couple of probing questions. Mm -hmm. But it is about having those conversations occasionally about how much do you think you bring to the table with this or what do you think you could do and try and get a sense of how much the person thinks they have control over their life versus how many other external factors have control over their life. And that that's just one sliver of a worldview. There's so many other things we could be teach, um, talking about now, but I think that's often what we call locus of control. Is it with me or is it externally? I think that's one that in the health sciences comes up all the time mm -hmm. because ultimately, as you've suggested, we, we often are trying to get people to change their behaviour. Mm -hmm. But if you're working with someone who doesn't believe behaviour change will make any difference to their outcome that's a that's that's yeah. going to be a very tricky sell right there that, that's really helpful to uh, to understand that understanding if you like the locus of control in those difficult situations the last thing we want to do is to further take control of someone who already feels the life is out of control Look, absolutely. Although it, it, it's an interesting one. We, we know people who have very high external locus of control don't tend to do so well in life because they believe everything's out of their control. So, of course, they don't try. So, you know, it's, it's obvious. Yeah, lots of learned helplessness. They don't try. They just think whatever. Um, yeah, lightning's just going to strike me in that. <laughs> That's that. But funnily enough, and, and I've heard this from I've heard this from doctors before, particularly really difficult stages of an illness, say a terminal illness, where sometimes people with a really high internal locus of control can run themselves into trouble because wow. now they're dealing with something that they can't control. They really can't, and they need their doctor or their oncologist or whoever to kind of take a bit of charge and go, mate, uh, <laughs> I, I, re I really would like you to do this. I think this is, you know, 100% in your best interest. So you, you've got to be careful. It's those people on the extremes. It, it always is, isn't it? It's those people on the extremes that I think can be most challenging. Most people in the middle are at least a little bit flexible, depending on their situation. So this is one lens I'm going to take away, Rachel, is that when I have these discussions about patients who have Googled all sorts of things, and we're having reasonably 
in-depth discussion, uh, in the back of my head, it would be a discussion myself about where do they find their locus of control? Mm -hmm. What are they really wanting from me? How am I going to work in with them? Am I prepared to work in with them? Are those the questions? Are they the right questions to be asking? One hundred percent. So, what we know from psychology is working <laughs> against a pe- person's worldview will get you nowhere, <laughs> or just get you into that horrible, defensive kind of difficult situation. You do have to work with it. Look, let me give you a really good example that I use often in in psychology. So, we in in Australia um, for alcoholism, for example, <laughs> we have a very um, structured sort of very CBT cognitive behaviour therapy based program. Great in a America, they, they're very much into Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not that either program is right or wrong, but it's about horses for courses. Now, for people who aren't terribly familiar with AA, it, it is still quite wrapped up in religion, but it is about giving away your control. You admit that you are powerless in the face of alcohol. You can't control it. You need groups to help you. You need social support. All of that stuff's great, but straight up, you've got a worldview there, right? I am powerless in the face of alcohol. That's very different to the more secular CBT approach, which says you do have the power. You have the power to change your behavior. You can actually moderate your alcohol use or indeed remain abstinent for the rest of your life. We're going to give you a whole bunch of tools and strategies and coping mechanisms and all sorts of things to assist you with that. So you have a patient in front of you. They have an alcohol problem. For me, one of the first things I want to know is, Where's your locus of control? And by the way, are you a bit religious? <laughs> because if you have a high external locus of control and you're a bit religious, you know what? AA is probably the go. That That's going to work really well for you. It's going to work in with your value systems and you're going to buy into it and it's going to be great. If you're a very secular person and you, you, you've got a fairly strong internal locus of control, CBT and the more sort of classic models of psychological intervention that we'd offer in Australia is, again, 100% the go. So it's not that the program's right or wrong. It's the program is right for a particular type of person. And so that's, that's an example we use a lot in psychology just to get people to think about hey, you've got a person with a health problem, but depending on the behaviour change we're looking at and how they think that behaviour change will be affected really points to the best program for them. I've learned a few things so far. So let me see if I can summarise some of these. The first thing I have to be aware of is whether or not the patient has turned up with all this information but has a high degree of health anxiety mm-hmm. because that will determine what I do next. Uh, The next thing I need to ask is whether they get the source and really try to engage about the sources and whether or not it's something we could both put some belief in. The third is actually the the way we communicate the bedside manner because it does change the colour of the consultation. The the next one is understanding uh, worldviews. It's not I will understand it today, but I will know soon enough how you see the world and whether you're a person who believes that you have no control because it's all destiny and fate. And, and the last, of course, which you've just mentioned, is um, a, a really interesting one and something we don't actually, at least I don't always clearly ask myself, uh, are you a person who is secular and therefore have enormous or some belief that you actually have the power to change yourself? Mm-hmm. Uh, or are you someone who is more faith-based, m- believing, if you like, in a higher power and therefore knowing uh, what else 
might actually be, might work for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, are these some of the messages that I'm getting? Absolutely. In fact, HD, David, uh, that's a great, <laughs> high distinction for you. That's a great summary. <laughs> I wish I could talk to my students and they'd give me a paragraph like that. <laughs> make my life a lot easier yeah and look it's not just about religion I mean it's about culture it's about so many different things isn't it and yeah you know again you can't be an expert in every single culture you can't be an expert in in every single family system or how people were raised but it is just about opening to listening and thinking oh actually, I think you might be a bit of a religious person, or I think you might have a worldview that, you know, is very actually strongly internal, or I think you might come from a culture where um, messages from authority are always respected and never, never questioned versus another culture where, you know, people constantly challenge and ask questions and and that's considered fine. You see, you're right. It's about that communication and that interaction and which we, we largely describe as bedside manner, but to really be skilled in that, I, I think is, you know, take, takes a long time and a lot of experience and, and just that openness to sort of really think about, okay, where are people coming from here? Mm. And it doesn't really matter whether the information they're presenting did come from social media, did come from Google, or in, in fact, just an articulation of their own concerns. Exactly, exactly. And and don't forget, you know, people will often be drawn to information that reinforces their belief in the first place. So that is one of the problems with social media. They'll go in there with their value systems and their worldview yeah. and their beliefs, and they'll usually find, well, they'll find anything they want. And that's the problem. They will definitely find something that validates that or mm-hmm. agrees with that, even though, you know, we, we might think, oh, you actually really need to think a little bit differently about that. And I really do think if you change this behavior, you could, in fact, improve, et cetera. Etc. So, uh, I think that's where we get those sort of gentle challenges of of a worldview, and and do just understand that look, those views are very robust. You're not going to change that. And my my real advice would be try and find a way to work with it as best you can. And, and there's always the chance that if you work too hard and tear down other people's towers, if you like, um, they don't actually have a safety net to fall back on, and you go, oh my gosh, what have I done? Look, absolutely. And I've I've heard this before, funnily enough, from pediatricians, because, you know, there's always someone in the media racing off to a snake oil merchant in America or whatever to get some sham treatment. Mm. And, you know, they've, they've sort of said to me, our our difficulty is, is we, we can't really, you know, we, we can't sort of be too harsh on the parent. We all understand what's happening here. They're in a terrible situation. Um, and the other problem is if we're too harsh or if we're too unrelenting, the child will be removed from our care. And mm. you know what? I'd, I'd just rather have myself just at least involved mm. and, and the parents respecting my involvement, even though they're racing off and doing this sham treatment over here, fine. So long as it's not hurting the child, even though I know it's you know complete garbage, it's still better for me to be involved in that. And look, I'll bring back Mulaney again. The Mulaney midwife said something to me very similar a while ago because literally we have women giving birth in cauldrons in teepees and... <laughs> She said, if she so much brings a blood pressure machine in there, she'll be thrown out, you know. <laughs> and she said, Rachel, all I want to do is build rapport so when they go into labour, they'll call me. That's that's all I want. And she said, I cannot get any further than that with that particular group. And I thought that is one of the more sensible things I've heard in a long time. So it's just, yeah, sometimes mm. it's just about just just respect me enough to, to let me be involved in your treatment. I actually have a slight, that's beautiful because all I had was this mental image that maybe you've just given me permission to walk with you on your journey, but not to hold you as a person who's already arrived at your destination with no potential for change, but that in the future, 
you may not hold the same point of view, but I have not sacrificed our relationship getting there. That's absolutely right. I think it's it's a really nice way of looking at it. And and it is that, hey, I'm still here. And if you'd like some, you know, scientific advice, <laughs> I'd love to give it to you. And I'd love to help as best I can, even if you are going on a tangent that, you know, doesn't do it for me. Um, you know, I still, as you say, I still would just like to be involved and I'd like to walk on that journey with you. Rachel, we're getting close to the end of this very interesting discussion. Uh, so what would be some of your advice, uh, summaries or key points uh, to our GP listeners? Look, I think you've actually done a pretty good job for me there, David. But <laughs> Look, really, the key is work with what you can. <laughs> it really is. Don't try and work against a person's own worldviews or beliefs, no matter how kooky they are to you, because you just won't get anywhere. I promise you, there's been decades, hundreds of years. We haven't figured it out either in psychology. So so I'd be very surprised if anyone else is going to figure out how to do that in the next five minutes. That's there as their own safety net. That's how they understand the way things work. And that's their value system. Mm -hmm. And to challenge that usually causes great psychological distress. And in Mm -hmm. fact, people who have what we call a massive worldview shift are often very, very distressed. And it's actually extremely bad for them psychologically. So try try, you know just accept that this is who they are uh, and this is what you've got to work with so if we go back to social media why are they looking at this you know is it health anxiety is it just genuine information seeking where's the source that they're getting it from is it actually a sensible source versus a you know uh, something that's really way out there how is that person using that information you know that locus of control stuff I think is just one area to look at and how can you then best as you say I like that that analogy you've used walk with this person on this journey keep yourself involved keep yourself there as a touch point so at least they're getting some level of of hopefully you know a beneficial um, care arrangement there and all I hear really is just you being a really lovely person <laughs> respecting me for who I am and for all my craziness <laughs> and accepting the fact that maybe one day we might have a different conversation Look, absolutely. And you know what? I think I think people really appreciate that. They really do. And I know myself, even if someone said to me, I think that's nuts, I don't think that'll work or whatever. But you know what? They haven't derided me for it. They haven't shamed me for it. You know, they've they've just said, Well, that's kind of not the way I'd do things, but hey, you do you, and I'll be here if it doesn't work and you <laughs> You need someone else to help. And that that is the kind of relationship that will keep people coming back. And before I let you go, Rachel, here's a story that's very pertinent to me. I will always remember some years ago when a patient walked in and said, Dr. Lim, did you know that your gut is your second brain? And I looked at them as if they'd just fallen off a tree and um, only some months later to realise, oh, my gosh, they are right. And uh, <laughs> I, I've been very humbled by that experience. I, I think, you know... It- if, if, if we're to be honest and if we are to be open-minded, we've absolutely all had that experience. I've had that kind of experience too. And and look, I, I hope everyone does. It's, it is a bit of a reminder that we don't know everything. <laughs> That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's been such a joy speaking with you, Rachel. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. 
HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.